But I started going to AA and caught on fire with, I loved AA. And the first meeting I went to, when we held hands and said the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting, I felt the Spirit come into me. And I think I took, you know, that sort of preliminary first step where it says, if you have decided you want what we have, then you're ready to take certain steps. And I think at that moment, I decided I liked what you all had going versus what I had going. It's been a great ride ever since. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, hello, lords and ladies. That was the voice of Jack Z that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And I am so thankful that Mr. Jack Z was able to come over and to record an episode And uh, you are going to be grateful for that in just a moment as well, because Mr. Jack Z is one class act. Uh, He is one of the nicest guys that I have ever met in my life, an absolute gentleman. And uh, this, believe it or not, is episode number 86. I can't believe we have made it to 86 episodes being published, but... uh, Nonetheless, I have known Jack for approximately 30 years or so, and we actually share the same sponsor, Mr. Bob L. And if you want to go back and listen to Bob L., he is on episode number 38. It was in September of 2018, and uh, you can go back and listen to that if you want to hear the man that hear of, hear from the man that is responsible for my demise. Uh, nonetheless, a Jack is almost 31 years sober. We are calling this the grouch in the brainstorm, and it comes from a passage, and those of you who are familiar with the big book will be, will, will know of this passage, but it says, if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of more normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. And Jack Jack is going to talk about uh, the grouch and the brainstorm. And uh, another thing that we talk about right on the beginning of this episode that I just wanted to kind of get, I guess, up up and out of the way uh, right at the very beginning, and that is uh, Jack has struggled over the last couple years now with some pretty serious health issues. 
and I'm not talking about a hangnail here. We're talking about life and death issues. And uh, he is going to discuss how AA has helped him through these difficult times. And he's very open about the dark times that he has gone through with these various health conditions. And uh, he's going to talk about that uh, uh, on this episode. Uh, Jack has been married to his beautiful bride, whom I know, for 56 years. And he's going to talk about marriage before and marriage after Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, going to talk a little bit about uh, her participation in the uh, program of Al-Anon. And one of my favorite quotes from this particular episode is, Jack says, we alcoholics are the elite among the mentally ill, which was just great. So by the way, if you happen to hear a clicker in the background while I am recording this particular episode, that is because my son is in the room at the same time. In fact, he just turned and looked at me. Uh, we had to do a rearrange some rearrangements here in our home today, and he has the Xbox in front of him, and uh, he is uh, just going away at his Xbox games, whatever they do there. What what uh, what game is that? Rainbow Six Siege, for those of you who may know what that particular game is out there. I did ask him, though, he was talking to friends a little earlier, and I said, if you could, please be quiet. Don't be talking to the other people. But he did turn his head when I started talking about him. But nonetheless, uh, (laughs) I think it's great, though, that he's here in the room with me while I'm recording this. All right, so Here's something I wanted to talk about real quick. Uh, I found out yesterday. In fact, I started to record this episode or the introduction to this episode yesterday, but I found out yesterday, right as I was about to record this, that a good friend of mine from high school had uh, been killed in a plane crash this week. And I just kind of had to stop and reflect on that and soak that in um, over the last 24 hours. I have been recording an episode with uh, Gary Kay recently, and uh, it's an episode that hasn't been released yet. But he said that his sponsor told him at one time, in AA, there are two things we will never treat as problems. One is grief, and one is sadness. Grief and sadness are just part of the human condition. So I would say to you, if you're out there and you're experiencing grief and sadness, go through it. Um, It is part of the human condition. And I'll never forget my first year in Alcoholics Anonymous, a friend I knew uh, through the group uh, who was a police officer. His name was Ed. Um which uh, there was some irony there in and of itself that uh, he was a police officer and he was a friend of mine. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, in fact, he would sometimes attend meetings in his uniform. And I think a few people uh, who didn't know him had a cardiac arrest when he would walk in the room. But nonetheless, uh, we had lunch one day all together as a group. And then like a day or two later, uh, Ed went to his garden out in his backyard to do some work. He had a heart attack and he died on the spot. And uh, I never forget it, that it hit me like a ton of bricks. I had never experienced anything like that while I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I asked my sponsor, Bob, I said, what should I do? 
And he said, go home and cry. That's what I did. So that's what I did. And I remember thinking at the time, that's the first time someone has given me permission to cry. And, and, and it wasn't the, the drunk cry, the, the slobbering, self-pity kind of cry that many times one can have when they're drinking. It was truly a grief, a, a, a grief and a loss type of cry. And uh, that was a significant experience in my life. So I've been going through that the last uh, 24 hours. And um, another thing that I wanted to talk to you guys about today is a, um, I was presented with a, uh, a dilemma today. And uh, I'm not going to go through all the details, but the dilemma includes two things. Uh, two things, and the two things are my ego and my, fi- and my finances, uh, and that is a bad combination for me. So there's a whole lot of gray area in this situation and different people, including me, are involved with different versions of the same story. But uh, in doing an inventory on this earlier today, I can see that uh, I'm afraid of what other people are going to think of me. And I'm resentful, quite honestly, that I will lose the money. With that being said, it ultimately comes down to an issue of faith. I've taken that third step, you know, when I turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And so it really comes down to, do I really, do I really believe that it's all his and that I am only a caretaker of what he gives me? Or am I more like the self-centered actor uh, that the book talks about? I believe it's 60, 61, 62, all those pages in there. Am I like that self centered actor that wants to run the whole show. And, um, and I'm fine as long as other people do as I wish, so to speak, but I'm not fine when the actors get out of place and they're not doing what I think they should do. So it really comes down to a few things. I guess I can fight for my rights. I can pause, which is what I've been doing so far. I can talk to someone. So I'm talking to you guys <laughs> and I'll speak with my sponsor tomorrow. I actually tried to call him today, but I, I couldn't get a hold of him. But in the end, I know what it always comes down to. And that is, is that I will go to that still, small, quiet voice inside me. And I will ask directions for the right thing to do for everyone involved and not just me. And I can tell you that that is very hard for me to do sometimes, to ask for the right thing to do for everyone involved and not just me. So how do you handle grief? I'd love to hear from you. How do you work your way through the gray areas in life that don't seem to be all nice and tidy and you tie it up into a bow and it's not like just do I steal or do I not steal sometimes there's a lot of gray area so those two topics how do you handle grief how do you work your way through the gray areas in life send me an email to john j-o-h-n at soberspeak.com now enjoy listening to mr jack z i'm sure you will And we'll have some listener feedback at the end of this episode. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Mr. Jack 
Z. So, Mr. Jack Z, can you go ahead, introduce yourself, and give your sobriety date if you choose to do such, please? Thanks, John. Uh, my name is Jack. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, sobriety date is August 12th, 1988. August 12th, 1988. So, help us out with the math there, Mr. Jack. How long has that been now? Let's see, 30 years. You know, I have my little program on the phone here that tells me exactly that it's been 30.82 years. 30.82 years. So, in other words, if you make it to this August, you will have been 31 years sober. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable for both of us, my friend, by the grace of God. Absolutely. And one of the reasons you're not, yeah, I I should say one of the reasons you're here uh, is because we have a common sponsor, do we not? We do. And what is his name? Bob L. the Blaster's pal. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he is the Blaster's pal. And why do they call him the Blaster's pal, Mr. Jack? Well, I first met Bob probably... 35 years plus ago, working for an explosives manufacturing company. And Bob had gotten out of the Navy as a demolition expert in Vietnam, and he was working for this explosives company. So I got to know him a little bit way back then before either of us got into AA. So we call him the Blaster's Pal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a good little tidbit. And I didn't know that. So we're going to find out all kinds of things during this uh, episode. I'm sure that I did not know about you. So we have known each other for uh, close to 30 years or so, right? Yes, we have. Even golfed together. That's right. I forgot about that. (laughs) That was not pretty, but we did. (laughs) All right. So uh, Jack is over here. Uh, He is actually one of the first guys that I thought about getting on this podcast when I first started it up. I don't know if you know that or not. I did not. Yes. And it's taken us a little while to get to that point, but uh, we are here. So, you know, first things first, Jack, I want to I want to just kind of get this out there. And that is. Uh, I know that one of the reasons we have not been able to get you over here is because you've had some health issues here over the past couple, three years. Yes. So why don't you describe to the audience what your health issues have been like, where you are in that progress, and also how the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has played a part in your health. Okay, well, you know, it's a it's a miracle, really. It's a great story, and I don't mean to spend too much time on it, but it is, a, to me, a obviously important story, but it also is a lot, it, it deepened my gratitude for AA, because it got me through AA, and what you all have taught me in AA was an integral part of my uh, getting through this. So what happened was, about three years and three months ago, back in March of uh, 2016, I had this pain in my armpit. And I thought it was my bad golf swing that was just caused me some kind of discomfort. So I messed around with it forever, and it kept getting a little worse and a little worse. And finally, I had to start taking Advil for it and finally went to the doctor, did an x-ray. And sure enough, there was a spot on my lung. And I'm 74 now, so I guess I was 71 back when this happened. And uh, so to make a long story short, turned out to be stage four lung cancer. And... Uh, the part of the story that I like that relates to AA is, you know, in the book, it talks about uh, if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. In the resentment part of the fourth step, it talks about that. 
But then in the very next sentence, it talks about the grouch and the brainstorm are the dubious luxury of normal men, but for the alcoholic, they are poison. So one of the part of this story has to do with uh, resentments and being free of resentments and the problem with brainstorms. I'll come back to in a minute. But because um, it says that those are poison for the alcoholic. And what happened was when I got the news, I was in my office, my wife, who now we've been married for 56 years, um, was out of town. And I got the call from the doctor and I was at my desk at the office so he got lung cancer. I thought, oh, wow. And I immediately started to go to my computer and Google lung cancer. Then I thought, you know, that's kind of not what I need to do. I need to shut my door, get on my knees, and turn this over to God and just start following instructions at this point. So I did that, and I've never once Googled lung cancer, but I've always done what you all told me, and that's a ton of prayer surrounding this. And what happened, and the reason this ties into the big book I was just talking about, uh, quotations about resentments and brainstorms, is that when I got the diagnosis, they said there's nothing we can do here in Dallas surgery-wise because it's too big, it's spread to the ribs and the chest wall and all that, but we can try chemo and radiation. So I said, well, okay, so I started to get scheduled here in Dallas, but I happened to be talking to the kids about it, and my oldest son had been divorced a few years prior, and that was kind of a, you know, a tough thing to go through with three kids he had and his ex-wife and everything. But because of the program, when they divorced, this ex-wife, I called her and I said, you know, I'm sorry this didn't work out, um, but you know, you've been a good mother and you're a good girl and I love you. And so we remained friends, and she was looped into what was going on with me. Well, the very next day, she called and called a family meeting together for all of us because we still stayed friends because of the program. And she said, I have a college roommate, sorority sister, who's the head thoracic surgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And she told me that with what you've got, you should either go there, MD Anderson, or New York City, Sloan Kettering, are the only places that can treat what you have. So I ended up going to the Mayo Clinic and spending all of 2016 up there getting surgery and radiation and chemo and all that. And it was, you know, an interesting experience, to say the least. And I will say this before I get too deep into it, that as alcoholics, we can take comfort in the fact that do not fear chemotherapy, because if you've suffered through hangovers and fighting hangovers like all of us have, chemo is a cakewalk. <laughs> so we we were fortunate that we've been preconditioned to withstand chemo. So anyhow, what happened was this: they treated this up there, and I uh, had good results, great surgery, and all that. But it was it was tough. And they gave me like six to nine months. They said, this, this disease, usually six to nine months, is your life expectancy now. And I thought, well, darn. And sure enough, right across the street from the Mayo Clinic is a church where there's a daily AA meeting. So I started doing tons of AA up in May, at the Mayo Clinic and got through it, you know. And there's a lot of downtime and alone time and, you know, time to get into self-pity. And you all taught me in the third step prayer uh, to do the third step prayer, to get out of myself, to relieve me of the bondage of self. And that was very important through all this. And 
to have me pray as part of my daily upon awakening that my thoughts be divorced from self-seeking, dishonest, and self-pity motives. Because, as you know, the alcoholic, when he gets a lot of time on his hands, which I had, not knowing anybody in Rochester, um, lots of times is sit around and think. And that is very dangerous for this alcoholic. So I spent a lot of time in AA and in prayer, and it got me through it. And I'm thinking, man, thank God for staying in relationships and not in resentment with my ex-daughter-in-law, who may have saved my life by getting me to the right place, That one of the few places that could do this particular type of treatment. So anyhow, the surgery and everything went well. I'm thinking, yeah, well, we'll see if we beat the six to nine months uh, lifespan deal. And then the cancer came back a few months later in the brain and in the adrenal gland. And I thought, man, I am screwed now. This six to nine months may not even be the whole deal. So I started, you know, they started doing more chemo and all this kind of stuff. And I lost 50 pounds and it was uh, getting a little ugly. And I started having dark thoughts. And, you know, AA kind of got me through that. And where I talk about the, the what I just said about the, the grouch and the brainstorm being the dubious luxury of normal men, but for the alcoholic, they are poison. Even got into a dark place where, you know, I don't fear death, but I fear the process of dying and all the pain it's going to cause my family members and all that kind of stuff. And I started having thoughts about maybe I ought to go up to Oregon and try that suicide deal. Or I heard you could fly over to Switzerland and get a pill that would just end it all in a comfortable, quick fashion. And since I had this death sentence, I thought, anyhow, I said, well, maybe I ought to do that. But I kept prayer up and talked to a few people about it. And, you know, uh, I got through it and I, I didn't act on it, but the thought stayed with me. But I had this little nagging in the back of my head that AA had taken me back to church as part of the 11th step to improve my conscious contact with God as I understood him. There's this little nagging thought in the back of my head that, you know, I think the Bible kind of talks against that sort of taking of one's life. And so I kind of just never acted on it. Well, to make a long story short, about a year later, they came out with a brand new drug that's called immune therapy. And they put me on that on an experimental basis about two years ago. And I get an infusion of it every three weeks. And I am right as we sit here today. Uh, not having any reoccurrence. I've had two reoccurrences in the lymph system in different places, but basically I'm out playing golf and having a good time and doing lots of AA. And my point of all this is that AA, prayer and meditation, and talking to other alcoholics about what I'm doing and thinking got me through all of that. And that brainstorm I had about ending it all was just like the book said, it was poison. And I would have missed so much of life in the last couple of years, waiting, not knowing this miracle drug was coming out. And so I'll be on it for the rest of my life, but it's been a miracle. And it wouldn't have happened if I had acted on my brainstorm and old Jack's thinking. And instead, turning it over, it's all worked out. And it's kind of a miracle, really. It's truly a miracle drug that has come out. So I'm a big believer in the big what the big book says and prayer and meditation these days because it got me through three years of a tough time and today feeling great and more grateful than ever for aa so that's the health update <laughs> wow jack um 
you got me, you kind of knocked me off my chair here. I'm uh, having a hard time keeping it together and thinking of the next question. And uh, I do appreciate you sharing all that. And I'm so glad that you're here with me today. Um, what you just talked about there, how you're doing AA work. One of the reasons we had to rearrange our time today is because you're on the way to another event after doing this this afternoon. Am I correct? Yes. The uh, what they call the 24 hour club here in Dallas is a great uh, facility for men and women who are uh, having drug and alcohol problems. It's been around for 50 years and they house about 75 men and women there. Uh, and it's basically free as long as the people are trying to work and stay in recovery and attending meetings. And so they're having their 50th anniversary program this afternoon. And uh, it's just a great facility. And a lot of AA people have supported it and kept it alive for 50 years. And uh, it's just a, a wonderful facility, not a treatment facility, but more along the lines of almost a homeless shelter downtown Dallas that is just doing a lot of great work for getting people into recovery. Let's, let's go back a little bit here. So in your case, we're starting with present day. We're going to go mm. back, and then we're going to go right. forward. It doesn't matter. We just kind of shoot all around. Take, take us where the Spirit leads us, so to speak. Uh, so tell me about, did you grow up here in Texas, Jack? Uh, you know, how did you get to where you are today? Well, I actually was born and raised in Owensboro, Kentucky, uh, up on the Ohio River, born in 1945, and uh, grew up there in a alcoholic home. My dad was, a, I guess you would say, a functioning businessman kind of alcoholic. My mother also was an alcoholic, and uh, I, you know, up there, the distilleries literally were the biggest industry in our town. So whiskey and drinking and all was just that was just the deal you know it was just everywhere and uh, I remember when growing up there was a big billboard out by one of the distilleries they have a very distinct smell it's not a pleasant smell where all the the whiskey is aging in these wooden barrels and anyhow big billboard that had a drunk a broken whiskey bottle laying in the gutter beside him and said another satisfied customer and it was right out there by the distilleries <laughs> oh and it had been put there by the american women's temperance union and i remember as a very young person so well, that's kind of mean why are they doing that but anyhow whiskey was just always around when i was growing up and my family was, uh, my mom and dad, as I said, were kind of functioning alcoholics, and he had some success in business, in the oil business, and I had an older brother who's 15 years older than I am, and an older sister who's 13 years older than I am. My brother was a really bad alcoholic, an embarrassing alcoholic to the family, and good guy, but you know, 15 years older than me, and he's more like an uncle to me, but I just remember my family having lots of problems with him and he would do embarrassing things like people would find him passed out on the sidewalk of, of the street or have get phone calls at night to come get him and all that kind of thing my mom and dad were just always in turmoil over him then my sister was kind of perfect uh, and she married mr perfect and there's always just this big conflict in my family between my sister's husband, who was Mr. Right, and my brother, who was Mr. Wrong, and they were always fighting, and they were in business with my dad, and it was just a constant fight all the time. And I'd overhear my mother on the phone talking with other people about my brother and how he'd done this and that, and he ended up having to go over to Evansville, Indiana, 
to a mental institution. And I remember him coming home from that, and I must have been five or six years old, and I overheard her say that he'd been given electric shock treatments. And he was like a zombie just sitting there when he came back. And I always had this thing, I was never going to be like my brother. And anyhow, uh, turns out drinking was his problem, but he was also uh, manic depressive and bipolar. And they didn't want to look at the drinking uh, because that would have been an embarrassment to them. So it just went on and on and on. He died a drunk uh, 10 years ago or so. And uh, so he kept drinking, kept until, drinking, never went to AA, but never could put 30 days together. Did he and, know you were in AA? Well, funny story. When I got in AA pretty soon after I was in, I was visiting up there, went to a noon AA meeting and there he sat. And uh, he shared in that meeting that he never could get over resentments of my father and uh, and he never he never could get sober and uh, died a drunk. Uh so anyhow, that, that's the environment I grew up in. Things were just not okay, I guess, to, to put, make a long story short. And then, you know, I did okay in school and had a pretty good neighborhood and all that. And then my dad hit an oil well and moved to a big old house out in the country. And I was kind of the, the kid in the big house amongst all these farmer kids. And I felt really out of place in the first, second, and third grades. Just didn't, I can't remember any friends. I can't remember anything living out there sort of alone, really. And I just felt different and not okay. And then I remember in the third grade, our teacher told us that we had to take this IQ test. And I said, uh-oh. And she said, you know, in Kentucky, we're the third dumbest state in the union, besides West Virginia and Mississippi. <laughs> well, and you, at least you you're not the worst. <laughs> right. And she said, you boys and girls better work hard and study hard or you're in trouble. And I remember thinking, yeah, I think she's right. I don't feel like I'm as smart as other people. And I just grew up that way. Things were just not okay. And I didn't feel okay about myself or our home environment was all messed up. And mom and dad were angry and fighting all the time. So anyhow, what happened to me was I just kept looking for something that would make me feel good. I tried every sport, too short, too slow, can't see out of one eye. So I just couldn't play ball very well. And I tried real hard, but I never could make it. And finally, I made it on the basketball team. And I was like the sixth or seventh guy on the team. You know, I wasn't a starter, but I was on the team. And then in 1961, they integrated the high schools. And uh, all of a sudden, we had a really good team. But old Jack was like number 12, Val, and barely <laughs> hanging on to a position. And um, one day at practice, we were getting ready for the state tournament. We'd made the state tournament, and the coach came up to me and said, uh, Jack, we're going to let a younger guy make the trip to the state tournament. You're not going to be on the travel squad. And I had worked really hard to be a basketball player, and I just wasn't that good. And it just crushed me. But, of course, I told the coach, I said, sure, coach, no problem. But I was dying inside. Oh. Because what that told me was, you know, this is going to be evidence now that you, you think you're not very good, and he's disproved that you're not very good. And what happened that same week before I got cut from the basketball team, my girlfriend had told me she was pregnant, and we were in high school. And I thought, oh, wow. And this was back in the days before pro-choice or and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, if she got pregnant, you had no choice. So we got married, and then the next week I got cut from the basketball team. It was very traumatic, obviously, telling her parents, who were great people, non, non-drinkers, that we had to get married. And my mom and dad did not react to it good at all. It was just a big trauma. And I felt just 
miserable because here's another piece of evidence that I was a bad guy and I couldn't hide it. And I knew I was a bad guy. Here's evidence, proof to the public that I'm a bad guy. And I was, I was walking home from basketball practice after being cut. I remember I ran up into some bushes and, and broke down crying. I didn't want anybody to see me, so I hid in bushes. And I think I had a little breakdown then. It was just, there was just too much going on. So anyhow, we got through that and got married and came to Dallas to go to SMU. And my dad supported me to do that. And I got to Dallas and away from all that sort of shame and trauma and guilt feelings and hit Greenville Avenue and started drinking. And we had a baby and we lived in an apartment over by SMU. And the first time I hit Greenville Avenue and started drinking, that feeling of being bad and not as good as left me. And I kind of went crazy with drinking. And my wife stayed home and worked part-time and raised the, the baby. And I did the school thing, but mainly I worked. I got a job with a CPA firm and worked. And I found that work gave me that feeling kind of like alcohol, that if I did good at work, I felt that I was maybe okay or was doing something good. So I became a workaholic along with being an alcoholic. And between working and drinking and trying to go to SMU, it was, it was a hard hard time time-wise I wasn't doing great at any of it but I was working really hard so I progressed a little bit at work barely got out of SMU I did not graduate but I, I finished four years and I went and applied to Arthur Anderson the big accounting CPA firm I think back back then they were the biggest firm in the world and I got the job somehow and you know on the application they say well are you a college graduate and I checked checked yes but I really wasn't and they never checked that. And so they later went out of business with the Enron thing. I said, I understand that because they're not very good at checking things. <laughs> and anyhow, I worked there and the drinking got worse and I barely hung on and I got fired at that job. And, and uh, anyhow, then a whole series of just jobs where I took jobs that were get rich quick kind of scheme sort of things, trying to hit a home run to make me feel good. And we had a second child, and the wife, my wife Nancy, who's just a great girl, was left at home to raise the kids, and I'm out drinking and working and whatever. And it was just a big mess. And so finally, after about 25 years of that, uh, and I could give a lot of stories in the drunk log about problems in Las Vegas and problems with the IRS and all this kind of stuff, and I had plenty of them. But what finally happened is she got miserable enough and we had a, our youngest child who, when he was about 16, got into drug and alcohol problems in high school. And he was one of these kids that would hang out on the street corner with the smokers before school. And I was obviously into drugs and alcohol. And I was absent from home working all the time. And um, my wife joined something called Al-Anon. Oh, no. And I said, what the heck is that? I, don't, I didn't want to hear about it. And I wasn't home that much anyhow. But she seemed to be getting stronger. Before, she'd kind of been obsessed with fixing our drug addict kid. I, on the other hand, was absent. But when I was home, I was embarrassed by the fact that I had a drug addict kid. And I thought made it all about me. And, you know, what is my sister going to think about this? And stuff like that. People might think I'm a bad parent if I have a drug addict kid. And I just basically left the scene and didn't want to deal with it, left her to deal with it. And you can imagine the marriage got pretty rocky. 
And one day I came home after a year or two of this. My son went to outpatient treatment, and I had to go to family week, which was the scariest week of my life because people talked about their feelings and what was really going on in their homes. And I'll never forget sitting at the family week in a big circle with all the parents and the kids. And this one guy across the room said, Hi, I'm Ted, and I'm codependent with my son Jeff here. And I thought to myself, codependent? That must mean he did drugs with his kid. I had no idea what the word codependent meant. And I got a resentment towards this guy. And that's how screwed up I was. Anyhow, we finished this uh, outpatient treatment. And uh, pretty soon after that, my wife said, you know, if we don't go to counseling, I don't think we can stay married. And all the counseling was the last thing in the world I wanted to do. So I said, for some reason, I think God tapped me on the shoulder and said, why don't you do this? So I reluctantly went to this counselor with my wife. In the first session, she kind of outlined the problem she was having. My wife did in our relationship. And the counselor said two things. said, why don't you all agree to stay married for 90 days and let us work on this marriage that's now 25 years that you've been married? And I said, okay, I'll try that. And my wife said, I'll have to think about it. And I thought right then, I thought my wife was dependent on me. And for her to have that degree of confidence to be able to say that shocked me. And I thought, man, this Al-Anon thing she's in, I don't think much of that. And uh, (laughs) then the counselor said to me, she said, I had thought I had done a good job of explaining to the counselor that my job was really high pressure and I was having a hard time at the job. My oldest son was sort of estranged, didn't have much to do with us. My youngest son was an alcoholic drug addict through treatment, and uh, my wife was obsessed with my youngest son and was not giving me near the amount of loving that a great guy like me deserved. (laughs) And if all that wasn't enough stress, I was losing my hair, (laughs) which I've now completely lost. I said... I've got a lot of pressure on me, and I do drink a little extra, but I had never... A little extra. (laughs) Never, ever once thought of myself as an alcoholic. I really didn't know what an alcoholic was, and just never... The question never hit my mind, really. But I did realize I was having a big problem with hangovers. They were becoming (laughs) a real problem, and I was having a hard time making it uh, you know, up every day and all that, and I was trying to control my drinking. And, uh, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't stay out of the hangover problem. So at the end of this session, the counselor simply said, she said, Jack, do you have a problem with drinking? And I said, no, I don't have a problem with drinking. And she said, well, that's great because then you won't have a problem with not drinking. And I said, well, what does that mean? And she said, basically what I'm saying, would you try not drinking for 90 days and go to 90 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in these next 90 days in order to give us time to work on this marriage and see where we are. And for some reason, I I never did anything that I didn't want to do. I was self-centered in the extreme. But for some reason, I think God came into my life big time at that moment, and I said, okay. And I went out that night and got me a meeting directory book and uh I called a friend of mine, the only friend I had that I knew was in AA, and he needed to be because uh, he and I drank together, but I knew he was in AA, and I called him, and I got his answering machine. He lived up in Oklahoma City. And I said, hey, Bob, this is Jack. I've been told I need to go to AA. What do you think about that, and how does it work? 
So I left him that message, and then I got home a little bit later, and I had a message from him on my machine. He said, yes, you need to go to AA. All you need to know is, is that it works really well. And remember this, when you know, you know, you don't know. And when you know, you don't know, you know. And I thought, what? (laughs) What in the heck did he just say? So I hit rewind and played it again. And when you know, you know, you don't know. And when you know, you don't know, you know. And that statement has stayed with me to this day. I love that statement because to me it speaks to humility. And I don't need to know because God's got everything just like he needs it. And like I need it. And I don't have to worry about it. That stayed with me ever since. But I started going to AA and caught on fire with, I loved AA. And the first meeting I went to, when we held hands and said the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting, I felt the Spirit come into me. And I think I took, you know, that sort of preliminary first step where it says, if you have decided you want what we have, then you're ready to take certain steps. And I think at that moment, I decided I liked what you all had going versus what I had going. And I took that, made that decision at that point. It's been a great ride ever since that holding hands and saying Lord's Prayer has been a great experience ever since then. All right. Well, we will be continuing our conversation with Jack Z in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at www.soberspeak.com. There on our website, you will also find the donate button, which you can use if and only if the spirit moves you to do such, only if you feel really good about it. Uh, And please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Jack Z. All right, so we got into uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, you've said the Lord's Prayer, you feel part of. Was that on that August 12th, 1988 date? It was. Okay. So you haven't had to have another... So it sounds to me like you came in and you stuck, right? Only by the grace of God, because it, yes, I did. Okay, so take me a little past then. First of all, <clears throat> I do want to talk about uh, your lovely bride, Nancy, uh, who is a wonderful lady, both and I, Mr. Jack, have married, both you and I uh, have yes. married up, so to speak. No doubt about it. No doubt. And uh, I know that you all, right? I mean, there, so tell me about, if you could just sum it up in just a few words, your last 30.82 years with Nancy in Alcoholics Anonymous. Can you talk about that a little bit? Wow. Well, first of all, she stayed very active to this day in Al-Anon, and that's been a huge plus in our lives and our marriage and with kids and everything. So I have a deep debt of gratitude to Al-Anon. And, um, and we had, I, I would say our first year or two in AA that I was in AA was not easy because I was becoming a different person and, and you know, it's it different. I mean, it's like two different people all of a sudden. We had to decide, well, did we want to stay together? And I did a ton of counseling, marriage counseling as a couple, individual counseling, and then men's group counseling. I was going to lots of lots of meetings. And um, 
I had good sponsorship initially, and I, I just hung out in AA and did you know probably 180 in 90 days. I just liked AA. I liked the people. I made a lot of good friends uh, early on that to this day are good friends and uh, people I hang out with. So I just liked it. But I started having some doubts about this alcoholic thing because I really didn't know what it was. And when I got in, I learned so much that I think – talking about humility and when you know you know you don't know and that kind of thing i was learning how much i did not know uh i basically lived a self-centered life where i just didn't know a lot of living skill things and i was learning a lot and i heard a speaker say that hey if you're having a question about is alcohol a problem why don't you just make a list of your just like one sentence of your most harmful embarrassing drunks events and so i started that list and became clear to me pretty soon after doing it for a couple of weeks that a list of 20 or 30 things that were highly problematic drinking events arrests duis things like that that i just pushed aside as bad luck but every one of them alcohol was involved and so i i decided that when i got to that paragraph where it says if when you honestly want to you cannot quit drinking entirely or if when drinking you cannot control the amount that you drink, then you're probably alcoholic. Well, I saw that paragraph. Well, I had never, ever honestly tried to quit, so I couldn't answer the first part of that question. But that thing about controlling the amount that you drink hit me hard because I tried to do that every day, and I never hit the mark. I always drank too much to have a bad hangover or do something stupid, and it just that, that hit me hard. And I said, okay, I admit that I've got a problem. And you all were teaching me at the same time in meetings about this thing of the disease of alcoholism and the physical allergy and the mental obsession. And so I got in touch with in the doctor's opinion and through talking to others, the fact that I have a disease, just like diabetes or something, I have a different biochemistry than people who are not alcoholic. And that made it somewhat comforting to me. Because I had thought I was kind of crazy, like my brother. And it was starting to worry me. And I said, man, I've got a disease. Maybe I'm not crazy. And that was comforting to me. And I've since heard a, a Sam S. has a statement that I love. He says, you know, as alcoholics, we are the elite among the mentally ill. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that statement because I do feel a little off from my fellows <laughs> and, uh, and the non-alcoholics. And uh, I'm grateful to have a disease for which we have a solution. And uh, anyhow, I was getting in touch with this disease concept and felt that I had it. And so I was able to go on with the uh, first step and see what a mess things had become. And then I did the second step, okay, I'll, I'll do that. It was kind of like just a gimme step. Then I got to the third step, sort of the same thing. It was just like, okay, I'll do that. And I kept hearing people in meetings say, well, just make a decision at three and go forward. That's all you got to do. Then I made the mistake of reading We Agnostics. And I saw in there a couple of things like we made sure we could abandon ourselves to him at last utterly. And I thought, wow, that's a big statement. And I saw this thing about the freedom it gave me to have my own definition of God, as I understood him. And it said, however inadequate was sufficient as long as we took certain other steps. And that kind of gave me the freedom to move forward because I always felt stupid in church. 
And you all gave me freedom where, you know, it's okay not to understand every story in the Bible. And uh, you can still have a relationship with God. And I, that was news to me. Then I got to that part about, well, what is my God going to look like? And it got to that part where it said, you know, our own concept, however inadequate, is sufficient so long as we believe in a, the possible existence of a creative intelligence underlying the totality of things. And I was hmm, I think they're talking about the big guy here. They're not talking about just my sponsor or the group being my higher power. They're talking about God. And so I was able to kind of think that through and say, okay, I'm willing to do that. Because as you know, it says in there, as alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone nor evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that God is either everything or else he's nothing. What was our choice to be? God either is or he isn't. Well, I had gotten my butt kicked in Las Vegas, and I knew odds. I knew about odds. I saw no odds in taking the God is nothing. So I just said, I just made a decision. I'm going to believe that God's everything. I'm not going to debate it. I'm just going to think it. And then I got to that next sentence, which I think is not quoted as much, but it's key to me. It said, arrived at this point, we were squarely confronted with the question of faith. And I started thinking about that, and to me, you know, I think this, or I believe this, or I have faith in this, always had meant the same thing to me, more or less. But I heard a speaker say that faith is a lot different. And I'm thinking, what is he talking about? And he said, imagine this. Imagine that there's a guy with a wheelbarrow, and a tight wire is spread across the Grand Canyon, and he's going to push that wheelbarrow across that tight wire over the Grand Canyon. And if you think he can do it, you might bet a hundred bucks that he can do it. If you believe he can do it, you might bet a thousand bucks he can do it. But if you have faith he can do it, you'll go get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> and it kind of hit me, kind of a little silly statement like that, that, you know, I, I have a lot of thoughts, but I don't have much faith. And so I started thinking about that around, around the same time I was doing the written fourth step. And when I got my resentments, my fears, and my sex inventory all down on paper, it was a lot worse picture than my mind had allowed me to imagine. I actually kind of thought I was an okay guy with a little bad luck. But when I got it all down on paper, it was, it was a bad picture. And I, my morals and my character were, had sunk to a level below where I would allow myself to imagine. And I saw that coupled with this newfound information about faith and God and the freedom to have my own God. Uh, I went back and did the third step for real at that point because I saw that I needed help beyond just a little fine-tuning. That I really needed God's guidance and to set me on a different path. And that's when I really took the third step. I kind of went back and did the second and third steps and the second half of the first step about unmanageability in my life because of that written fourth step. And that was an eye-opener for me. So I, I credit the fourth step to really saving my life because I'd had this thought. I was sitting in the Trinity group one day at the noon meeting, probably my first couple of weeks of sobriety. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a captain of industry. <laughs> you know, I don't really need to hang out with all these people. <laughs> and I think I know a lot more now after a couple of weeks about the disease and everything. I think I can handle it. 
And I was going to, I was not going to come back. I was pretty sure. And after the meeting, this guy who I've never seen before or since walked up to me. This is a God deal. He said, uh, here's my business card. Why don't you read it? I looked at his name and never heard of him and name and phone number. And on the other side was the promises. And he said, read those. And I said, right now? He said, yeah, right now. And he had the lead in about, you know, are these extravagant promises and all that. And they read the promises. And I got to the promise that said, fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. And some kind of, something happened in my chest. I realized even that early in sobriety that fear of people and not being good enough had plagued me my whole life. And fear of economic insecurity would make me look like the loser that I already felt I was. And I didn't want that proof out there, so I was always striving for a big deal. And it never came. And I said, you mean this can happen? He said, read the bottom. He said, it said there will always materialize if we work for them. And at that moment's when I got on fire for doing the steps and really got to working hard in AA. And when I finished that fourth step, I knew I needed help. And in that fifth step, when my sponsor had me get on my knees and do the third step prayer, holding hands with him, which I thought was a little weird, frankly. And he had a candle lit and he had iced tea made for me and music playing. And I was able to get everything out, even the three things I'd written in code on my fourth step because I didn't want anybody to know about <laughs> right, those. The codes, right. And at the end of our fifth step, having gotten all that crud out, he hugged me and told me he loved me. And no man, including my father, had ever told me that he loved me. And I thought, wow, I just got the worst of me out, and this guy says he loves me. And it had such a feeling on me that I just, I just became fired up for AA. And the other thing that happened was for the first time in my life, I was always a quitter. When anything got hard, I found a way out. But the fourth and fifth step had been the hardest things I had done, and I did it. And I felt a part of AA. I did not feel as a spoke in a big wheel. I felt a part, an integral part of AA. And it was a feeling I never had before in my life. And it just felt great. And so back to your question, you're asking about my wife and I. Well, we've now been married 56 plus years. And she's just a great girl. We have six grandkids. Our two boys and us are really good and tight. And we have our ex-daughter-in-law and our current daughter-in-law. We're all in this big love fest. And uh, it's all life is good. Life is really good. What is there, Jack? What do you think is the most interesting or the best piece of counsel that you have received during your sobriety? Oh, no question. Work the steps. Work the steps. I've had a lot of experience with, early on I was kind of like Columbo or Dick Tracy. When anybody would slip, I'd be all over them trying to figure, well, what were you not (laughs) doing and that you should have been doing and what were you doing that you shouldn't have been doing and you know, I never found a common denominator, really. You know, here are things like meeting makers make it, and I kind of believe that, but it's not a universal truth. But I would go quiz people, and i never forget quick story. Warren was a guy at the Preston Group where I go. There was an old-timer, and he's kind of a grouchy old guy. And he, uh, I got to know him a little bit, and he got in trouble, and he started coming to meetings sharing about it. he was not feeling good and not, not things weren't going right, and he was kind of depressed and all this. And he was going to lots of meetings, and he sounded like he was doing everything right, but he was miserable. And I took him to lunch one day, and 
I heard all this story, and I was just I had no bullets to fire. I couldn't figure out what he was not doing and why he was feeling like he was feeling. So at the end of the lunch, I just said, Warren, are you working the steps? And he blinked, and he said, well, I think so. I mean, yeah, I think so. And it dawned on me that, you know, if you're working the steps, you know when you're working the steps. And I'm not exaggerating. A week later, he killed himself. And it hit me hard because I'd gotten to know him a little bit. And so working the steps, again, took on extreme importance to me. And uh, so I kind of live in, you know, active in the steps, working with others, and I love it. And daily prayer and meditation has become a big thing with me. And I was in a meeting Friday, and they were talking about prayer being so important. And one guy said the most important thing, and I'm thinking, well, you know, it's kind of like everything for me, because I once went a little crazy at 25 years sober because I went on a three-week trip with my wife to Africa. I didn't want to go to Africa. I don't like snakes. I don't like (laughs) bugs. I don't like any of that stuff. But she wanted to go, so I did it. And I went about three weeks without a meeting. But I was doing my prayers every day. And when I got home, I was busy, and I didn't go to a meeting a couple of days. And all of a sudden, I found myself in a really dark place. And it and I got back to meetings and it evaporated. So for me, you have to answer your question, I think prayer, meditation, meetings, being a part of the fellowship as opposed to apart from the fellowship is key, key to recovery. So what else do you want to leave for the listeners? Uh, you know, I really, truly have enjoyed uh, our time together. Um let me phrase it this way. There are going to be people listening to this who are out there and they are considering recovery. Can you share from your experience what it was like to overcome that fear to actually make it into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous? Gosh, you know, I really think the answer to that question is not going to be one that's very concrete, but I think it was God's grace that got me here uh, and kept me here because I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to come. I didn't want to stay, but I did. And I'm not in a habit of doing things I don't want to do. And so I really think it was God's grace. But I will say that just by going to meetings and letting the fellowship envelop me and feel the love and the hope, because I think hope is a big thing. And I think we feel it when we hang out in AA and we see people who are hurting and people who are feeling good. And it gives us hope and uh, and gives us a method. You know, the book talks about the fact that we, we need a spiritual solution. And embedded in the word spiritual is the word ritual, meaning we get into a habit of doing the right things. And it can be as simple as just going to a meeting, that doing those right little baby steps will lead to great things and it gives you hope to carry on. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. Very well put. Okay, so we're going to end it here with page 164 of the big book. And on page 164 it says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like myself and Jack, as you trudge 
the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. God bless you, Jack. Thank you again for coming. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. How about that, Mr. Jack Z? He is definitely a man that I hold in the highest regard. He is one class act, just an incredible man. And it's incredible, too, that both me and Jack have turned out okay, considering the sponsorship we have had for Mr. Bob L. Ah, just kidding. (laughs) You know, Bob is the guy that told me when I called him up slobbering and crying one day after I'd been sober for about a year, I was complaining about something. He said to me on the phone and he says, you know, John, I usually don't say this, but in your particular case, I'm thinking suicide is an option. (laughs) Oh, I'm just kidding. Bob's a great guy. I'm not just kidding about what he said. He actually said that. Um, but, uh, he's a great guy and, uh, uh, we've all had lots of fun together throughout the years. All right. Now on to a little listener feedback. All right. Ruben, Ruben V is in victory writes in and he says, hi, John, I found you through listening to Spencer's, the recovery show podcast and thought, Hmm, maybe I should check out sober speak. That's a very smart man, Mr. Ruben. I am, as you say, in the recovery world, a quote, double winner, unquote. So I do both programs and I am currently in my fourth year of sobriety. And what's weird is I've been in Al-Anon longer, longer, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And I've heard that story many times over. I currently live in the South Bay area off of the coast of LA, somewhere in the Torrance slash Redondo Beach area. And would like to get back to my AA roots, if you know what I mean. I love both programs as they have helped me in my life and my relationships with my family and friends, both in recovery and at work, also with my kids. I owe a lot of my recovery to the rooms of AA, for if not for the fellowship, I would not be sending this reply to you. So thank you for your service and having a safe and loving platform for people like me to come and listen and participate in my own recovery as well. I look forward to all the episodes on your podcast. I've started from the most recent one with Ricky R., which was fantastic. So thanks again. Much love and respect. Ruben V. with a big old smiley face. Thank you, Ruben. Appreciate you writing in. Ellen writes in and she says, Hi, John. Thank you for all the guests who share on Sober Speak. Today is day number 117. Sober, thanks to God and the fellowship of AA. Your series has provided a great many aha moments and head nodding as I listen on my daily commute to work and on long drives between clients when I'm on the road. I have told many friends to look for and to listen to Sober Speak. Keep up the great work, Ellen, in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, thank you for writing in, Ellen, in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Kelly Q writes in. Kelly Q, that sounds like it should be like a, a movie star. Now, everybody, Kelly Q. Nonetheless, hello, John. My name is Kelly Q, and I'm an alcoholic from South Carolina. I have been listening to your podcast for a few months now. I started with episode one. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all for all for making all these podcasts they are truly my meeting between meetings for me there have been many days when i needed to hear what you or your guests had to say every podcast touched me touches me in in a positive way i have joined a group and i am working through the steps with my sponsor. I am truly amazed how beautiful life is now, just as promised. I would like to join the Facebook group. If you are ever in Clemson, in the Clemson area of South Carolina, we would love to have you for a visit to our group. I, I hope you keep the podcast coming, Kelly. Well, you know, I have actually been out to Clemson, the Clemson area, traveling on business, and I have stood there, and I have looked out at that Clemson football stadium, and it looks just like the Roman, what do you call it, the Roman Coliseum out there, and the fans are right down on that field. I think it absolutely looks very intimidating to an opposing uh, um, team. So maybe that's why they've done so well. Plus, they have great players and great great coaches. But nonetheless, uh, thank you so much, Kelly Q, for writing in. And I can't believe you started with episode one. I did not know what the heck I was doing back on episode one. I was just trying to get my feet under me. And uh, But anyway, thank you for all the kind words. Melissa writes in from down under in Australia. Hi, John. I just discovered your podcast. I'm from Australia. Man, that is a, I am, you know, it's a bad accent, but hey, at least I'm giving it a shot. I'm from Australia and I'm 14 months sober. I'd love to join your secret Facebook group, please. By the way, the last person just talked about that. Just in case you don't know, if you want to join the secret Facebook group, just uh, send me your email associated to your Facebook to John John at SoberSpeak.com. Anyway, she says, my history, I started drinking at 13 years old. This is Melissa still writing from down under. Um, since the first time I drank, I've drank and I've blacked out. I thought it was normal that the more pissed you got, you blacked out. My father, oh my goodness, my father committed suicide when I was 13. That's when it all began. He was alcoholic. His father also died in his 50s of liver failure due to alcohol and his father, this in his father, the same. I am married with two children. Last year I hit rock bottom. It's been tough, but I'm getting there one day at a time, going to AA meetings and seeing a psychologist and a DNA counselor. I'm assuming that's drugs and alcohol counselor. So, anyway, Melissa from Down Under, I'm glad you found us. I'm glad you're listening in, and thank you so much for being involved vulnerable and sharing your story with us. John P writes in and he says, hi, John, John M. 
Me? Anyway, he says, please add me to the Facebook group. I found the podcast during a round trip drive to Cincinnati from McKinney, Texas. The drive was made much shorter from the excellent content, especially the podcast on the principles from the other super awesome John, that's John W. I have been thinking about this topic for the past year and all those ideas were articulated in 90 plus minutes. Keep up the great work and happy anniversary to you, John M. on May 30th. Well, thank you, John P. I appreciate it. Now, there is one big John a thon there. We've got a John P writing in to John M talking about the podcast done by John W. It is a Jonna Palooza. Did I just say that? Jonna Palooza? All right, my son's in here. He's kind of looking over at me like, did you just say that? Anyway, Nancy H writes in and he she says... <laughs> <laughs> Hi, John. Loved your podcast. I just listened to Dawn. That's Dawn C. Dawn C. D A W N C. Loved her recovery that she shared with you and us. She talked about her inventory journals, and I would love to find out how I could get in touch with her. I live in Auburn, California. I would like to join your secret Facebook group. I'm an Al-Anon member and have been in Al-Anon for 32 years this month. Wow, that's great, Nancy H. Grateful to have found your podcast. I found you through listening to the Recovery Show podcast with Spencer. Thank you again again for your service, John. Blessings, Nancy H. By the way, just in case you haven't heard the other episodes, she is referencing The Recovery Show by my friend Spencer, and it is an an Al-Anon-based podcast. And uh, just in case you haven't heard it, uh, it's a great podcast. I would go over there and listen to it. All right, Tom writes in, And he says, hi, John, I'm an alcoholic. I took my last drink on August 20th. 2013. My sponsor turned me on to your podcast. I have been enjoying them on overnights when I travel. Would you please send me an invitation to the Facebook group? I'd love to be there as well. Thank you for what you do and all who share their steps. My email is, and I won't give that email, best regards, Tom. Jenny writes in and Jenny says, I live in Iowa. I had a... I had a year sober, but I had a slip and I'm back at three and a half months now. I've done all my recovery here in Iowa City, and it's a great place to do it. I found Sober Speak by, while looking for sober-based podcasts, and it's my absolute favorite. Well, thank you, Jenny. It's gotten me through some hard times, and thank you for your service, Jenny B. Well, thank you for your service within Alcoholics Anonymous, Jenny, and thank you for listening and being part of the community. I appreciate it. Casey writes in, and Casey says, thank you for your podcast and the group. Five exclamation points. I'm obsessed Four exclamation points. Thank you. Three exclamation points. (laughs) So I guess it's good that she's obsessed. (laughs) So far, she hasn't stalked us, so that's a good thing. She sounds like a really nice stalker to have, though, if you had one, nonetheless. Thanks for writing in, Casey. Steve writes in, and Steve says, I'd like to join your secret Facebook page. I'm just coming back to AA 
uh, after being out for 12 years. Before I, before that, I had 12 years sobriety. I live in New York and have an hour commute on the train every day into work. This podcast has been fantastic. Also, I hoped you could point me towards where I might get my hands on one of those recovery uh, journeys. Uh, one of those inventory journals, one of your guests mentioned recently. Thanks in advance, Steve R. So first of all, thanks for writing in, Steve. I appreciate it. What Steve is talking about is about the last episode with Dawn C., uh, called Do the Work in Alcoholics Anonymous. And she talks about some various, uh, and this is just a passion project for her. This is nothing where anyone's making any money on this stuff. Uh, but she has a passion project where she has these uh, 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 inventory journals. And if you are interested in getting in touch with her, um, just go ahead and send me an email to john at soberspeak.com and I'll pass on the email to Miss Dawn and uh, you all can have a conversation from there and I'll get out of the middle. Okay, Francisco writes in on Instagram and he says, oh my God, thank you guys. And I like that he says, thank you guys because what he's talking about here is me and my wife and Miss Cassandra and Miss Bridget and all these various people that help with this podcast. And everyone's doing this once again as a passion project. Uh, we're just doing it uh, uh, out of the the goodness of our hearts because we want to do it and because we like being in community with you guys. And anyway, he says, thank you guys. On Wednesday, I celebrated my first year sober. All right, Francisco, that is fantastic. And you guys have been an important part of my sobriety. Thank you so much. One day at a time. Thank you, Francisco. And I'm once again, I'm so happy that you are one year sober. Keep up the good work. Hi, John. I hope, oh, this is Wes who writes in and, uh, he says, hi, John, I hope you're doing well. My name is Wes D and I just discovered your podcast yesterday. Thanks to another podcast. My wife, who is an Al-Anon, sent me the latest episode of, once again, we talked about it a moment ago, The Recovery Show, in which Spencer rebroadcasted the interview you conducted with with himself and Amy, and now I'm subscribed to both podcasts. My wife and I are currently separated, and she is trying to decide what she wants to do going forward. My hope is that we can reconcile. And I believe we can, but that episode really gave me a lot of good stuff. I have to say you do a great job listening to the newest one with Dawn C right now. Not only am I getting a lot out of it as someone recently sober, but I'm also an internet broadcaster and a co-owner of an online radio station. I don't know if you're a broadcaster in your professional life or if you ever were, but you're a natural in all capital letters at interviewing. You're doing an excellent job. I have never been on a radio program in my life. Uh, this is absolutely a, what you would call an avocation for me. Uh, I have a real, I don't know how to say it that way. Uh, I have another, I have a job that pays the bills, so to speak. Uh, but uh, I appreciate, so much appreciate uh, your compliments there, uh, Wes. And Wes goes on and he says, I'm involved, I'm involved in AA here. 
in the Columbus, Ohio area. My sobriety date is January 6, 2019, though I started attending AA a few weeks before that, initially to make my wife and family happy. Now I'm in it for me. Well, good for you, Wes. Anyhow, I'd be interested in joining the Facebook group. And he talks on, he talks a little bit about that. And he says, I think because he thought he had maybe gotten into the group. And he says, I say this because I'm totally blind and my screen reading software doesn't always indicate clearly whether or not the like went through. Anyhow, Here's the information you need to get me in the group. Otherwise, feel free to send me in, send me an invite or drop me in. Have a wonderful day, Wes. Well, Wes, thank you for writing in. And I think we've gotten you into the Facebook group and I will follow up on that. All right. So last but not least here, I have something from Mr. Bobby. And Bobby wrote in and he said, hey, John. I'm starting to understand the need for meetings and the fellowship, the quote, we unquote of the program and the pep rally of it all. I sit here on maybe day three of no sleep. I did a great job sobering up for a couple of months, but now I realize I was unable to commit to that first step. I really had a problem, but didn't know how difficult it was going to be to really digest the fact that I can't manage this. I really don't have any power over my drinking. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I guess I believe that I was just wasn't a quote true or quote full blown alcoholic. I guess I started feeling good again and strong And like I'd overcome so much else and I got busy with life and I thought I had this, I was good. And then I relapsed, started binge drinking and well, it all just fell apart so quickly, so easily. There was no big event or meltdown. I simply found myself alone in a situation with time and a bottle of booze that wasn't even meant for me. I really am powerless over this, and I can't run from that anymore. Thankfully, I've got a great social network who can help me catch myself again. And though I did some damage to my career and put strains on some relationships, I'm on day three sobering up, still not feeling quite myself, but at least the worst effects have passed. I am now faced with the truth. I now see to a much greater degree the care with things in the program, whether they are in the place they are, and understand with painful clarity how easy it is to get brave, curious, or just simply flippant about it. But alcoholism isn't like that. It doesn't just let you, quote, just have one, unquote, or give out free passes, at least not to me. I may... It may tell me for a day or two that I'll have one drink or two or one in the evening, but then I'll look down at an empty cup in my hand, the used bottles on the table or the ground, and realize that it may have been slow a, a slow coasting start, but I never had any breaks, and now things are traveling way too fast, spiraling forward, and there's a crash coming. 
That crash will be me and my sickness colliding with everything I love, work for, and that matters to me. I can't stop it on my own. I can't stop myself from going to the one place that I fear and I hate above all else, and yet it looms in front of me as I ride forward with each swallow and glass that I can't put down and can't, big letters, can't, cannot, big letters, cannot, is the right word or phrase. If anyone doesn't know what it means, or quite understand why, and for the longest time I didn't understand when I looked at my father, then you don't have to, then you don't have an addiction like this. It's not a want. It's a train we can't stop, and it has no brakes. Instead of others come, instead of others, instead, instead, others become my breaks. And they've been great because I'm lucky enough to have amazing people in my life, but I can't use them again. I'll lose all of this very soon if I'm not careful. And then comes the sobering up and the withdrawals and the panic attacks and not eating and the shakes and the sleepless nights and the guilt and the hopelessness of it all. And that is a fight too. But already, this is much longer than I attended to discourse. Thank you for reading. If you've ever, if you've made it this far, don't know if that made much sense, or if it's any help at all, or even at time, even what the point was, I started simply by wanting to say, hi, how are you? And I'm template and I'm tempted to simply hit the delete button, but I think I'll hit send. Like a new friend told me in a meeting yesterday, sometimes the best thing we can do is throw up our hands and say in big quotes, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, unquote. At least at that point, we have a place from which we can move. I'm finding some comfort in that as the sun begins to rise this morning, it's a new morning. I feel horrible, and yet this is the best I've felt in days. Life is lived one breath at a time, and now I'm on to the next one for today. Thanks again. Sincerely, Bobby. I know that last one was kind of a long one, but as the book talks about, an alcoholic's in our an alcoholic in our cups is an unlovely creature, as is said, and it talks about the bitter morass of self pity, and I think Mr. Bobby caught that as he was coming off his bender, and uh, I can tell you this also that as I was reading that, my son got up and he just wanted to give me a hug, and uh, you know, between my son giving me a hug. And reading this and thinking about what it was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And I know Bobby, and I know he's come out of this, and I'm thinking about how well he's doing now. Between all of those things, it just made me have happy thoughts, basically, right? And just a lot of gratitude for where I am today. I don't know where you are today, but I will say this. Namaste. And I'm doing my namaste hands now, right, right now, and leaning forward. And God bless you. 
Love you. Thanks for coming back again to listen to this. One week at a time. I think I'll put out another one next week. Don't know for sure. We shall see. Adios.